Welcome to another episode of the Shift Train Podcast. I'm Ed Rudisell, as always, sitting here with Arthur Black. What's up, kids? And today we've got Jake Barrett from House Alpens coming to talk about a one hell of a portfolio. Hey, everybody. Uh, it's good to be back in Indianapolis. I'm here on sort of short notice. Uh, the, the fellow you should have been listening to in this seat, who's a lot nicer than me, uh, was so nice that he rescued his mom from Fort Lauderdale and Hurricane Irma. So, Lee, wherever you are, thanks for everything you do. Uh, Lee Edwards from our team. And uh, so I got to hang out with uh, some of my favorite folks. All right. Well, good energy out to, to him and his family then, for sure, and everybody down there. Um, before yeah. we get started, because uh, I, um, I know uh, Jake, I have known Jake, great dude, very informative. We'll be talking heavy about uh, vermouth uh, with some Amaro talking bitter talk and some completely, completely irrelevant talk, I'm sure. But um, we always get started with asking uh, what you had to drink last night. What did you drink last night, Jake? So I was actually home last night. So that was that's something different for me sometimes, especially in the autumn. Um, Where's home? Home is uh, about 40 miles west of Washington, D.C., and a very ordinary subdivision in a very ordinary exurb of Washington, D.C., out in Virginia. Uh, what did I have to drink last night? Um, I had a little bit of this and that while I was grilling, but probably the most uh, noteworthy of what I had yesterday, uh, a couple of glasses of the, the exquisite rosé from Francois Chidin uh, in Turin, uh, in the Loire Valley, uh, Grolot, Gamay, and Pinot Noir, basically a red wine in a pink dress, uh, a beautiful wine from a beautiful producer who gets all kinds of um, stick from the, the folks in Vouvray, uh, so much so that they've pulled. Right, so with this description, we're never going to finish this fucking podcast. Uh, Wrap it up, man. Just tell us what you grilled last night. <laughs> what did I grill last night? Um, I spatchcocked some chickens with a jerk marinade. Nice. And, uh, I just like the word spatchcocked with a jerk marinade. Yeah, right. It's uh, through <laughs> that. I told in. you I need to have sound effects over here. <laughs> only that's post production. Only 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 did that because I knew I was going to see Doctor Black today. Oh so, uh, yeah, yeah that, that's uh, that's that's Black Doctor to you. Yeah, but uh, but seriously, if you don't know the wines of Francois Chidin, then you need to. Awesome, Ed. <laughs> what did I not drink last night? Yeah, uh, you're uh, up in Chi Town. I was in Chicago. Um, had fantastic lunch at uh, Fat Rice and some. Awesome cocktails there, and the team there is just there's there's nothing they do wrong, and then finish off a little bit of you know some of their baked goods next door. But I uh, was lucky enough to have dinner at Next last night. So the wine bearing, I mean, what is there to say about it? I mean, it's one of the best restaurant groups in the city. <clears throat> Pardon me, but um, probably very memorable um, at the end of that meal um, because uh, some of the staff knew me. Uh, I got to try two of the special bottlings um, of plantation that were done for the aviary. Um, so if I mean, anybody that's interested in learning more about plantation rums, check out our last episode where we had Alexandra Gabriel uh, on with us. Um, but yeah, they were, they were bottled exclusively for aviary. And from, from there, the night just kind of uh, went into a spiral. So, I mean, I could... I could list everything I drink after that, but there, those would be the memorable ones. What yeah. is the second to last bar you ended up at? Man, we don't uh, ask you about their last bars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I would have. I would have been the bureau bar. I went to go see Josh Davis at the bureau. Um, so. I was gonna say, wow, you took it easy, and you really don't remember the second to last. <laughs> yeah. okay, that's usually me. Well, the night before was like hopping everywhere, you know. Of course, of course, Ed gets around. Um, How about yourself? Man. I had a grower champagne, uh, no Renard, Blanc de Blanc, 
Uh, go figure, surprise. It's um, yeah, right. Grower champagne. You're kidding me. Grower champagne. Nomine Renard. If you don't know Nomine Renard, it's one of the great new producers for the U.S. market. Well, uh, thanks, Jake. I wasn't going to tell them about it at all. <laughs> and beautiful. God damn. Cool. It's, it's going to be dueling shit talking this entire. That was podcast. great. I did. I've got a new co-host. Um, I know, right? <laughs> Fuck it. I'm, I'm taking off. I'm going home. Just um, a huge fan of Nomine Renard. Uh, they are. They're awesome. They're very well priced. They're also a member of the Club of Tresseur, which is sort of um. Uh, self-regulated group of about two dozen grower champagnes that are pretty badass and, and, and have strict self-imposed regulations. So it is available. You can find it, um, unlike you know a lot of uh, other grower champagnes. So check it out. Um, we, uh, we are with Jake. He mentioned he's uh, rarely home. How many markets are you in, Jake? Uh, so House Alpins is a company um, are actively seeking uh, representation in West Virginia. Other than that, we're good. We, we sell in every other state of the union, plus the District of Columbia, plus Puerto Rico, um, plus two, a few cruise ship lines, et cetera. You know, it's a, it's a big... You're really just trying to get into Appalachia, aren't you? Well, I mean, you know, there, there's... The, there's the a big West vermouth Virginia demand market, in uh, Appalachia. Well, there's, uh, there's some resorts in West Virginia. that would be nice. Yeah. And a few, a few um, small chains that are based in other states. Plus, why would you be in 49 states and but, not the uh, other? Well... People like our stuff, we hope. And now this is one of the it's amazing book, guys. We could we could turn this into a fifteen episode, you know, podcast because your book runs deep and I mean you can't go anywhere and not see all of these products on the shelf. uh, and it it seems to be growing. Last time I saw Jake was in um I think it was in D C was the conference. No, that was the New Orleans uh, Was it oh God, God, was it New Orleans? Oh man. I did a co presentation with Hoke Harden, who's a legend on botanical stuff um oh. and arthur was there and he wasn't sweating uh, like crazy so i guess he was paying attention there was um there were some pretty rough nights to be expected down there but during the daytime and i, I usually don't go to seminars or conferences because they're usually lame as fuck um i usually kind of just go and network and lecture myself but i did attend that seminar and we sat down and it was just like a smorgasbord of all these beautiful different colors of digestifs and amaros and bitters um reds and ambers and, and whites and off neon kind of colors this is a very diverse genre of alcohol that a lot of people don't know a damn thing about but it's been growing um around the country and and, and historically it's been very much embraced by the european culture here we've yeah. just added it to a lot of cocktails but now we're sipping them on their own well that's in large part i think because the industry the restaurant industry and bartenders have embraced it like with open arms and so while it seems not that kind of far out of our consciousness for those of us in in the industry there's still a lot of folks at home that don't really understand what amari is or vermouth or whatever i mean i i've mentioned several times on this podcast at the end of every night i either finish my night with a, a glass of vermouth or um or a tea punch. Yeah. <laughs> despite despite that um, that open Mostly arm tea punches, that yeah. embracement um, that the cocktail culture has, has gotten around with vermouth, a lot of people still don't know that much about it. Like one of my favorite questions for bartenders when I'm judging at cocktail competitions is, "What's the difference between vermouth and amaro?" And one out of ten maybe actually gets it right. You know, so why don't we let Jake answer that? I, for, I wasn't going to segue to that at I all. Know. Well, yeah, yeah. I thought you were going to answer I'm yourself. How competitive today? You I, two are assholes. <laughs> Told Jake, you he's my new co-host. Would you? Would you? <laughs> <laughs> would you like to tell us what what vermouth is, please? 
so vermouth, um, <laughs> the word vermouth comes from a Middle German word, vermut, W-E-R-M-U-T, which is the word for wormwood. Wormwood is an herb. Um, it's leafy and stalky, and, and, but the stalks are green. It's, it's very little wood to it at all, actually. But um, the, it's intensely herbaceous. It, it causes, actually, in, in some concentration, a sort of fuzzy feeling on the tip of your tongue. Uh, and then kind of radiates and you, it has a long finish, so you do feel it all the way through. Uh, wormwood is grown all over Europe, and mm. so it was one of the very first botanicals that Europeans combined with alcohol to make them happy and make them healthy at the same time, though we are not allowed to make health claims about alcohol. Uh, um, there are stories in antiquity. I love you know histories. Anyone who's listened knows, and people used to chew on it for bad breath and mm-hmm. uh, obviously medicinal purposes, and I, I read somewhere that... They'd use it to sterilize, like, uh, instruments for, like, birthing. And it's really? Like, uh, like, vermouth? Okay, sorry, lady. You know, your first three babies were run off by, you know, wolverines, but at least your birthing pit smells like fennel. Um, so, you know, there are always fun stories about alcohol. And there are three different primary species that are utilized. Most common, Artemisia adamanthium, because uh, Jake mentioned it is grown all over the place. And then to a lesser extent, Pontica, and then a third one called Meditima. But uh, the most common one is a... Um, Absinthium. Ab- yeah, Absinthium. Yeah. So, so, so the first people to combine wine and wormwood in a way that someone wrote down was, were the ancient Greeks. Um, unsurprisingly, this was, became a Greek idea stolen by the Romans. Um, and every house of a certain socioeconomic status in Rome would have kind of their own recipe. They didn't know the word vermouth. They didn't know what, you know, that it was the thing, but they had wine, they had citrus, they had this wormwood, they had varying sources of sweeteners, mainly honey. So they had all the things that you needed to make something that would be quite palatable and would kind of extend the useful life of a wine. Um, like so many other things, there's a bit of a dark ages to, to the writings about vermouth until the 1500s where it starts to show up in German writings and that's really where we start getting the word vermouth. The modern history of vermouth starts to emerge in what we uh, call in high school history class the kingdom of Sardinia uh, Mm -hmm. in the late 1700s but it's not the bit that's actually Sardinia on the map it's uh, the Duchy of Savoy the Savoie region of France and the Piemonte region of Italy uh, the cities of Torino and Chambéry Um, all this is to say that there's a whole lot of history of vermouth leading up to the point in the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s when people mixed a vermouth with a distilled spirit and called it a cocktail and mar- sold it for five times markup. So vermouth is a wine tradition first. It was drunk as wine first. Its use in cocktails keeps it alive, for sure. But in order to understand it, you have to understand its role as a wine tradition and its structure. Uh, and vermouth, I guess the last thing I would say is vermouth is one example, one subcategory of what we would refer to as aromatized wine. Um, that's a fan, that's a, a long word with an ized at the end, so it sounds creepy, but I promise you it's not all that creepy. It's just wine and plants. There's lots of examples of wine and plants going back to Chinese about 1000 BC. In the modern parlance, though, we're referring to something that has, in general, five components. Wine at least 75% wine uh, in order to comply with laws. Fortifying spirit, which is used for a variety of reasons. One, to bring up the alcohol, 
to kill bacteria. That's the primary reason. And then also to extract the herbs. Most folks will use alcohol to extract so they have their extractions ready to produce when the wine comes in. So wine, alcohol, sugar. The sugar is there to make Mary Poppins happy, um, <laughs> the, quite simply. Uh, you can throw in a liner of the song here, I suppose, if you wanted. But, uh, <laughs> but a spoonful of sugar really does make the, the thing, where, the M word we're not allowed to use when we talk about beverage alcohol in America. Alcohol is down. not medicinal. Right. Uh, the, fourth, the fourth element is, is the, the principal bitter. And the, these things basically all have a, a driving bitter. It's how they are categorized. In Europe, to call a wine a vermouth, it has to have wormwood in it. Uh, that's not the case in America. That's something that, you know, we don't, we don't love that idea uh, that you can make something called vermouth without wormwood in it. Um, but uh, other examples include gentian root, G-E-N-T-I-A-N. Gentian is the bitter in Angostura bitters. That's where most folks come across gentian first. Gentian bitter wines are called Americano in Italy, uh, referring to uh, both the, a word for bitterness, Americante, but also sort of the, the quote-unquote American idea of adding bitters to vermouth. Um, and then uh, gentian, you know, gentian grew in ancient times in Europe as well. So it was used in many of the same ways wormwood was. Cinchona bark, or, or the, source of na- the natural source of quinine, the, the chemical, doesn't really come to, Ameri- to Europe until the 1600s, and it doesn't really get shown to be very useful in that way we're not supposed to talk about until the 1800s. Uh, it only took about 20 years after the discovery of quinine's properties for it to end up in beverage alcohol, particularly the, the two of the very first ones being uh, Kina, that's B-Y-R-R-H, and uh, Bonal Jontianquina, both from Okay, Caribs. so he just mentioned three kind of different genres. Hold on, there's co- one hold, more component. You hold on, damn it. Five Shut up. No, no, you're getting ahead of yourself, damn it. I missed the fifth Shut component. up, you're the guest on this show. Shut the fuck there's up. pinky ring. Besides, my microphone smells like Fritos. Does anybody else's microphone smell like Fritos? No, I was That's actually away, the right? fifth element is Fritos. <laughs> Uh, no, the, the fifth element, and, and when you talk about, get on down the road of talking about bitter notes, um, you forget the fifth element a lot. The fifth element are all the other flavor factors. So that's Great movie. What's your name like, so hot in that movie? <laughs> things like uh, other spices and herbs, citrus, uh, oak can be a flavor factor, oxidation can be a flavor factor, um, you know, and... It's sometimes, it's most often, talking about that last component, is most often used to kind of differentiate between traditional styles of vermouth. And that's uh, something we talk about a lot in our day-to-day job. So there's vermouth, which is based on wormwood. Yeah. Then you've got Americano, right? Then you've got the um, um, Conchino. Conchino or Quinado, depending on whether you're speaking French or Italian at that moment. But uh, wouldn't Quinado fall in with the Italian DOCG from Piedmont? No, like, because you can put quinine in any wine, not just Barolo. Okay, so there'd be a separate subcategory of, a- right, I mean, category uh, of appellations uh, for the, the, uh, the Barolo. The brand Alessio wine. sells a Vino Quinado, and they it's do. wine and quinine. Okay. Koki sells one in the in the local market. It's mostly used in the local Italian market. It's mostly used as a base for Vin Brule, or the hot wine at, at a Christmas market. You can okay. put quinine in anything. Glue vine, yay. Um, all right, so backing up just a little bit to generalities of vermouth before we get too technical, which is ship's already sailed. I was like, yeah, before um, we get too technical. I'm right, sorry, I'm right. sorry, Dr. Black, have we met? <laughs> I'm never doing a podcast with friends again. I was afraid of this. I'm so afraid of this. But some people are very familiar with vermouth. Some people got no idea what the hell vermouth is because we got to, you know, we're building a wide base here, man. Yeah. Um, so uh, to speak about... 
um, vermouth stylistically. You do have like different dryness levels, so like dry, extra dry, sweet, right? And then you got like red, white, um, your rosos, your blancos, and you have different regional styles. Primarily, they make it all over. But primarily, we're talking about Spanish versus um, French mm-hmm. versus Italian. So if yeah, we could talk about those regional flavor characteristics that are safe generalities. Yeah, the, the three traditional areas of vermouth production, um, the, the fourth being Marseille, which is an oxidative style uh, that, that we don't deal in. Uh, it can that was be quite the first tasty. time I told a guest to shut the fuck up. Um, it is the first time. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Go on. It, it can be, the Marseille <laughs> style can be quite tasty especially by itself. But the, the, the three kind of classical styles that we work in, going from oldest to youngest, although there's not a huge difference, we start in Torino. Torino, or what you might call Turin, as uh, the traditional major city of the Italian region of Piemonte. They had the Winter Olympics there some years ago. In the it's Northwest. a beautiful city. Do not let anyone tell you it's an industrial wasteland. It's my favorite city in Italy. The uh, Go eat at Scanabue, have the Vitella Tonato, Get a nice old bottle of Scarpa Red. You'll you'll love it. Um, right by the train station. Uh, Torino. Is that an invitation? Because we're known to just <laughs> yeah. pick up and go. Like we just <laughs> we just picked up an invitation to, to yeah. Alsace. So. Um, <laughs> oh. Torino was really the first place that the the vermouth business emerged. Um, largely today associated with Giuseppe Carpano. The 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 style there. In the beginning, and still mainly today, is a is a sweet style. We call it red vermouth sometimes, but here's the here's the real key point: red vermouth isn't red because of red wine. Red vermouth is red because natural caramel has a red cast to it. Um, that's why most of your vermouths are actually sort of more brown than red, mm-hmm. unless they're they have coloring added to them, mm, which and, would be caramel, right? For color, well, the, the, the caramel is flavor. Uh, we'll talk more about caramel in a minute, actually, because it's important to talk about not just is it a red vermouth or a white vermouth, but how much caramel is in some of these vermouths. And not for a bad thing, but from a technical perspective. And honestly, I don't even know if we really said this, um, but vermouth is wine-based. And if you're talking about Category 1 vermouth or quality, you did. All right, sorry. Five, arom- five <laughs> vermouths to aromatize wine. You got lost amongst all the other crap coming out of your mouth. Um, Takes 75, one to know one. Uh, yeah. 75% <laughs> minimum is the wine base, right? Wine or grape must, yeah. Okay, all right. Throw that out there. All right, yeah. back to your car- so, uh, coloring. <laughs> so, t- But in Torino, you know, in Piemonte, there are a lot of big red wines, so they wanted to make a vermouth kind of in that vein. So they put a, big, a bigger style. Italians like things pretty sweet anyway. So, so Torino-style vermouths. We're always kind of had a little more sugar, a little more bitter, kind of a little more of everything. But they, you know, being a wine region, they also wanted to capture the fragrance of their local wines. So the traditional base for a true Vermouth di Torino uh, was Moscato. So Moscato gives you a lot of fragrance, gives you a lot of citric, um, sort of sweet orange fruit, gives you a nice little slug of acidity the way they grow it in Piemonte, since they grow a lot of it for sparkling wine. So it was a natural base for these sorts of things and, and is still a tradition amongst the very few producers today, including the one we work with. I mean, this is kind of a very basic thing. I mean, yeah. Regional products get made into um, other regional, um, larger genres of products. So like if you have, if you're in Piedmont, you're probably going to be utilizing Piedmontese grape varieties. In Spain, they're probably going to be making vermouths out of Tempranillo or Morvedre or Grenache. Um, you no, know, mo- uh, France, Uni Blanc, so on and so forth. Yeah, Spain is an interesting, interesting story because in Spain, the 
the, the real center for youth production in Spain is Catalonia, and in particular the city of Reus, about an hour west of Barcelona and just off the port city. Reus was the center of the wine wholesale trade in the late 19th century. If you made wine in Penedes or Falset or Monsant or Priorat or whatever, you brought your wine to Reus to sell it out to the world, and that became a very important place during Phylloxera in France, in particular where there was very little wine coming from France and Spanish wine was exported all over the world. So vermouth producers sprung up in Reus to buy surplus wine and make vermouth, but most of that wine was white. Um, there, there was more demand for the red wines than for the white wines. So a lot of Reus vermouth today, I mean, all Reus vermouth today pretty much is made with a mix of neutral wine, kind of wine for distilling made from Irene, which is the the, the main Spanish grape for distilling, and then a bit of uh, generally uh, Macabeo. Um, but I mean, they're still they're making vermouth in other areas of Spain as well, even though it's there are now the the, the 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 constitutive tradition, much like the constitutive tradition of Italian vermouth is from Torino, and the constitutive tradition of French vermouth is from Chambéry. It was the sort of Catalan style, relatively sweet spice forward, a fair a fairly large uh, slug of wormwood. Red colored, or red from caramel, and uh, a nice little bit of acidity from those white grapes. Okay. Um, so we've talked largely about red vermouth, um, and that's something we typically associate with Piedmont and the, the Italian uh, genre of vermouth. Um, but there's also a lot of white vermouth out there as well, which is something maybe more we, we associate with France. Yeah, so just like, just like how Italians want to mimic their big red wines, their big red vermouths, uh, in Chambéry and the Savoie, they want to just kind of mimic a lighter style, so they use pale sugar to sweeten their vermouths. Um, at, at the time, they used grapes in the region, although producers now generally use grapes from the southwest. Again, you, you know, when, when, you, when you analyze any aromatized wine, one of the first things you can ask is, is the wine a big part of the flavor, or is it mainly there for texture and acid? Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the case of most Chambéry vermouth, it's mainly there for texture and acid. Whereas in the, in, in the case of, of classical vermouth de Torino, Moscato base, it's a big part of the flavor. And then in the Spanish style, it's sort of in between, but closer to the Chambéry than the Torino style in terms of how much the flavor of the wine um, brings to the party. But it's also why you have to put vermouth in the refrigerator. Yeah, that's definitely misunderstood, I think, with a lot of folks out there that, that aren't in the industry. And it drives me crazy if I go to a bar even that should know better. That's what we're here for. We are. We're here to educate those of you that have no idea what we're talking about, and hopefully you learn something from uh, this. You know, I mean, I think most people starting out, and God, I <laughs> going back to uh, my early, early, early days in the restaurant industry, my early 20s, and that would put me in what, early 90s, I guess. It's like, you know, the only vermouth we had around was literally just in case somebody ordered a weird, a weird drink like their grandpa used to drink, you know, and what, you want a Manhattan? What? How the hell you met one of them? It's come a long way in this country in, in you know the past ten years. It really has. Well, that's what I was going to ask Jake. Is like so. I mean, you your portfolio, what you guys carry, is deep, deep, deep on Amari and Vermouth. And I mean, how aggressively do you see that growing? Like the demand for that. Like I'm, I keep wanting to see someone open a Vermouth bar here in Indianapolis. Um, and a lot of places don't have one. It's, it's a tough sell, I think, a lot of times for consumers to wrap their brain around that, a whole bar based on that concept. But 
obviously with the growing number of vermouths, and you you brought a new one with you here today. That you uh, just, it's a Vino Amaro. There's no wormwood in it at all, in fact. But oh, well, there we go. Well, yeah. we, hadn't, we hadn't touched on it anyway. Well, we'll get to the difference. We're going to get there. Tomorrow. Yeah, you can bitter with all kinds of crazy stuff, and there's just no subcategory for it. Right, yeah. So, I mean, technically, Amaro is really anything that's bitter and comes from Italy. Right, yeah. And so, Amari were wine-based for a long time before neutral spirit became inexpensive. Right. And we still work with products from that era. So, so how do you how much do you see like that vermouth market growing? Uh, you know, I think that what I see out in the world is you know you have you have the 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 high end cocktail bars that kind of want to play with all the new things, but you have more and more places that realize that they have to do just a little bit more. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, and it's not that they have 11 aromatized wines. There's very few bars that I would counsel to keep 11 aromatized wines around because you're going to get a lot of spoilage. But the idea that, that, you know, we have so much more good whiskey, but people who are more interested in cocktails, so we should, you know, make a good Manhattan. We have all these craft gins that, you know, maybe could use a little bit of texture added to them. So we should have a, a, you know, a textural, pretty, dry vermouth to go with them, or even a sweet white vermouth, a blanc, so-called blanc vermouth, to, to kind of work with them in, in simple cocktails. You know, I think a lot of the growth more recently is, is our, our friends who make drinks at home, uh, as I like to call them, the most important part of the liquor business, the, the drinker, <laughs> um, and, and sort of more casual places who realize that they've got to do a little bit more. And then as the business that we run in a lot has grown, fine bars, et cetera, you know, the, that sort of first generation of fine bartenders are now out and consulting for hotel right. groups and small restaurant chainlets and cruise ships and country clubs and, and those sorts of things. And, and the drinks have to be simple. The drinks can't be nuts and they have to be recognizable. I mean, a lot of what you guys have done, I mean, you... I'll, I'll attribute a lot of what we can get in the States to the work that you personally and the team has done because... Well, it's my boss, Eric Seed. He runs the show, and he, he's the one with the vision. I, yeah, he's once been called, what, like a... a, a Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones, yeah. yeah. Like an Indiana Jones-style archaeologist of finding old historic booze and, and liquors and aperitifs, et cetera. But I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to go into any self-respecting bar anywhere and not find Dolan at this point, um, which would largely be because of House Alpens. Um, so good I mean, job. Nine, you know, we, it's been nearly 10 years for Dolan in the States with us, and you know, we still sell it one bottle at a time. Sure. You know, we have uh, three wonderful vermouth lines that, that we, we try to get out to our friends out in the real world very honestly you know very with you know, real understanding of their history and application and and why one might work better than another in a given context whether that be price or style or or whatnot but uh you know we love we love all our children equally um, so um speaking of loving your children and then your friends that are the drinkers and your friends that are the bartenders. You did mention a while back, I might add, because I can't get a word in edgewise. Um, <laughs> spoilage. Really? Right. So could you just speak to the perishability? Like a lot of people, like Ed said, think you just throw it in the fridge and it goes on forever. You know, how should people be conserving so, their So aromatized, their wines are, aromatized wines are wines. 
So that's the first step. So there is a always this expectation of perishability when it comes to wines. Fortifying those wines doesn't do anything to change that perishability in an open bottle. So this, if you don't take anything else away from this, take the following away. All you're doing when you fortify wine, when you add alcohol to a wine, is raising the alcohol level such that while the thing is being produced, while it's under pressure in a tank, the bugs don't get at it. The, the bacteria, the spoilage yeasts, retinomyces, uh, the thing that turns alcohol into, into vinegar, acetobacter, doesn't get at it. But that fortification doesn't do anything for keeping the aromatics in a wine once the bottle is open, right? An open bottle of wine or an open bottle of vermouth doesn't oxidize per se, um, but, uh, but rather the high aromatics, the richer aromatics, uh, the, the fresher aromatics, not the richer aromatics, the fresher aromatics just sort of slowly come out of solution and volatilize away and, and the, the wine flattens. Um, if you think about a bottle of red wine, red wines are subjected to plenty of oxygen during their production for the most part. So that little bit of oxygen they get from an open bottle is not going to kill them. Uh, it really is this, this, just this flattening over time. And the same thing happens in an aromatized wine unless the wine is fully oxidized. Um, that's that's a, a, a very specific subset. The So what we find, you know, sweeter aromatized wines will last longer after opening in the fridge simply because refrigeration makes them thicker and makes it harder for those mm -hmm. aromatics to go away. Drier aromatized wines or, or aromatized wines where the flavor of the wine is less important part of the thing will, will last a little bit longer. or will last a little bit less. Sorry, drier wines last a little bit less time. You know, I always sort of say for drier stuff, one to two weeks, and for sweeter stuff, two to three weeks. But you got to follow your nose. The more you deplete a bottle, the more likely it is to volatilize aromatics. Right. Um, and, you know, yeah. the stuff is all great on the rocks with a twist. It all goes, you know, things that are bitter and have a vinous component always go really well with uh, um, aperitif foods. Aperitif wines go with aperitif foods. That's something we talk about a lot as well. So there's, there's a lot of ways to use a bottle. If you buy a bottle of vermouth only to make Manhattans, then you should try to do a few more things. Yeah, you're definitely not going to use it fast enough. Um, unless you Maybe drink. Arthur is. Yeah, it's like, unless you drink like yeah, Arthur does. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, who needs a fridge? But, uh, but aromatic molecules, like everything else, like us, we move slower at cooler temperatures, hence why you can preserve uh, wine or uh, other alcoholic beverages uh, a little bit better at, at cooler temperatures, but it doesn't mean that they're immortal. Yeah, definitely not. I mean, you don't want to you don't want to leave anything sitting around except Madeira. Um, yeah, I mean, one of my favorite cocktails to make for anybody at home. Obviously, you know that you guys love nothing more than uh, having a, a a fifty fifty martini. You know, just like with the right gin, right vermouth. Such a beautiful drink. Right, F fifty fifty wasn't the traditional proportion for the martini because math was simpler in the 19th century <laughs> it's because it works and people drank drinks like that as aperitifs <laughs> you know something to be said about the classics yeah two plus two is still four um the 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 martini is a beautiful thing and if your gin doesn't work 50 50 with a vermouth you like then it doesn't mean it's a bad gin but it might be a bad martini gin right yeah 
and that's that's the, kind of the fun of it. there is so there are so many options out there a lot of them coming from uh house Alpens, and then of course right now there's more gins on the market than we can keep track of yeah and they keep on coming um i mean the two we, ingredients are the, the combinations are endless well, um, a couple of things I'd like to wrap up about vermouth before we talk about tomorrow's and some other things and um, talk about maybe some vermouth classic cocktails because there's something to be said about the classics. Mm. Um, what are the, there are minimum alcohol levels for different types of vermouth, correct? So for our geeks out there, can you? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at your fine presentation on vermouth. Uh, it shows some alcohol description limits for things that are, that are dry. Um, the the main one that that we work in is the the limit in America for selling a wine product, uh, which changes. Some states don't use the federal limit. The federal limit is twenty four percent, which ain't a problem. You know, we we generally our our aromatized wines. The the biggest one, I think, the biggest one is eighteen percent. Well, here in Indiana, you know, it's twenty percent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some right. states some states are different. Texas is seventeen. Indiana is twenty. The federal limit is 24, and that's rarely an issue. Except for some Colt California cabs. Yeah. It's amazing what they can do with yeast these days. <laughs> and other ingredients. Um, so, um, classic vermouth-oriented cocktails. And I know there's a shit ton of them, but maybe pick one from each of the various genres, uh, whether it's you know whiskey, gin, vodka, like... A handful uh, I'm going to start with one there. that isn't any of those. Uh, it's actually two related drinks that are two of my favorite drinks in the world. Uh, both are dry vermouth base. Uh, one is called the chrysanthemum. And there are no points for guessing why it's called the chrysanthemum once you taste it. It's uh, two ounces of dry vermouth, one ounce of Benedictine, and a bar spoon of absinthe. It is a, a lilting, little, intricate, kind of a cold-weather aperitif that is just... A brilliant drink. Um, it's it, a perfect it's, time of year for it, too. Right. I, I mean, I really it. like it with both of our driver moves, both Dolan Dry and Miro Extra Seco. Uh, if you can get your hands on real, actual, made in, you know, the original French Dry Noir Prat, it works very nicely with that as well. Um, the one that's related and one that I think works particularly well with Dolan is a drink called the Rose. And it's the same build, 2-1 bar spoon, but it's two ounces of dry vermouth, one ounce of Kirschwasser, which is a, an unsweetened, clear brandy made from cherries, generally in, in one of the German-speaking countries. Uh, the Clear Creek makes uh, quite an exceptional one in Oregon. I had that and really then nice a, one out in Alsace recently. Yeah. Yeah, um, I wouldn't use something like Rochelle. Um, no, 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 no. Rochelle Ro- Ro- no, might no, be no. a, bit, a <laughs> bit overkill, but hey, you know, it's only an ounce. Yeah, uh, it depends on how baller you want to be, I guess. It's only 300 bucks um, for you. But two, ou- two ounces of dry vermouth, one ounce of, of Kirschwasser, and a bar spoon of raspberry syrup. And again, no points for guessing the name. So it's always, you know, there's sort of four of these drinks, these kind of lower alcohol stirred drinks that I love. It's those two, and then the two sherry and vermouth drinks the bamboo, dry sherry, dry vermouth, orange bitters, and the Adonis, uh, Amontillado sherry, uh, red vermouth, orange bitters. I, I, I like Dolan Rouge and Adonis' because it keeps the lightness to the drink. Uh, Dolan Rouge has a lot, is a lot less sweet than other red vermouths. But um, and then you know going through the, going through the spirit based drinks, the the martini really is its own thing, you know it's a, you know it's it's such an important image of the history of drinking in America, uh, the the. Through all of its evolutions, 
And there, there's a, probably a gin and a vermouth right for each one of those, but I'll, I'll stick to 50-50s. Thanks. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, the, other, the other drink that I really love that's kind of been reintroduced to me now that we, you know, in the time selling Heyman's Old Tom Gin is a drink called the Ford, which is built a bit like a Martinez. It's, uh, so you can use kind of your favorite Martinez proportion if you want, but it's Old Tom Gin and dry vermouth with a bar spoon of Benedictine and a dash of orange bitters. And it's, it's, again, another one of these drinks, not unlike the chrysanthemum, that has this sort of innate, sort of contemplative nature to it. Um, whiskey, the, the Manhattan is always going to be its, its, its deal. I, I highly recommend, especially if you like Manhattans with, with bigger whiskeys, I highly recommend trying those drinks with an extra slug of dilution to them. Yeah. Whiskey is tannic. You know, the, the wood in whiskey is extremely tannic uh, in, in bourbon or rye, American straight whiskey. And I think that, that you can have a lot of fun if you make those drinks, yeah, with a little more vermouth, especially a lighter vermouth like Dolan Rouge, but at, with a lot more dilution and with a, maybe a little less cold temperature. You know, when it, 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 you know, there's no greater feeling in the world than being served in Manhattan, right? You're on top of the world when you're served in Manhattan, but I always find that they're too cold because uh, as I don't know if you guys talked about how chilling and dilution work together in the past, the, the, you know, in order to get the drink to, to, to get to equilibrium of dilution when it's stirred with ice, it gets some dilution, it gets very cold, but I don't think it's enough dilution. So it actually, when I make a Manhattan, I add water to the mixing glass. I think we did a thing on ice, pretty much, with, with camper, camper, right? Yeah, he talked yeah. about it a little so, bit. Well, we also talked about uh, quinine. Camper loves his quinine. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fun guy. Other, other, other whiskey and vermouth cocktails. You know, my, I, I, do love, uh, I do love the Brooklyn um, uh, rye, dry vermouth, maraschino. Uh, traditionally a Picone, there's a variety of things you can use for a kind of sweet bitter orange character Bigayeshi uh, Nashina, Amaro Ramazzotti a few other things but uh, again another drink that has some intricacy to it uh, you do want a slightly sweeter dry vermouth uh, either uh, Dolan or, or maybe even one of the modern guys for that um, you know that, those are those are always going to be kind of the classics for me. Yeah, I was going to say that's that's yeah. a lot for I think people that aren't familiar with the category but, but, that can really light a fire. But one one more combination, and I encourage you to try it in a variety of different ways. I am a big proponent of mixing agave spirits with aromatized wines. Yay! <laughs> because agave spirits, I love it as well. Agave spirits are dry, but they're aromatically lush, whether they're floral or earthy, and <clears throat> So they like the acidity of wine together with them. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a lot of acidity, just a little bit. You know, we all drink margaritas, and that's citric acid. It's very harsh acid on the palate. Tartaric acid, the main acid in wine, is the acid our mouth likes the most, but it's also the acid that's going to set off the nuance of a good agave spirit very well. And so the, one of the ways that I, I like to demonstrate that to people is to take you know, a Blanco tequila that you like, or even a, a Joven Mezcal, although... Mixing with mezcal has certain moral issues uh, regarding uh, agave <laughs> regarding agave availability, but uh, I a, concur. A blanco tequila that you like, and and Dolan Blanc, kind of the original Blanc sweet white vermouth, and just combine them 50-50 and put an ice cube on it and taste it. 
And I think you'll find a lot of different ways you can go from there. You can add a little lemon juice and soda. You can make a stirred drink with a, with a sweeter seasoning uh, in the cocktail. Or you might just, you know, halfway through thinking about it, you'll be done with it. So, All right. um, so. so do not discount. I did a seminar in Chicago on uh, a Chicago cocktail summit. I'm mixing agave spirits and aperitif wines. And it was some of the most fun... One of the most fun hours I've ever had because we basically try three combinations and then discuss as a group how to finish the cocktail. It was a lot of fun. That's fun. Sure, they were all empty glasses. Yes. Yeah, I, I always like uh, hitting a little bit uh, with with a rum agricole. Um, you know, it, Surprise. It, again, but it's it's. I mean, it's a short hop, skip, and a jump from agave spirits when you get all that terroir and earthiness out of it, and so. It was, again, yeah, I I particularly like. Um, Sweet but not too sweet vermouths with rum agricole. Again, you don't want just like when a tea punch is too sweet. It's basically you basically right. lost the drink. Yeah, yeah. Um, made a daiquiri. <laughs> you know that a vermouth that's too sweet is going to lose not the flavor of the rum, but kind of the volatile high character of the rum. Mm-hmm. All right, so vermouth, check it, learn it, drink it, share it with your friends. Don't let bartenders. Um, Bartenders don't let it kind of fall into that world of sherry where you drink it and enjoy it, but it doesn't always trickle down to consumers and still has trouble um, in sales. Let's let's sell more vermouths, drink more vermouths. Well, um, that leads us right into the next thing that we need to educate people about is Amari, because th- that's and that's in the industry an obsession with every bartender, every bar owner, every restaurateur, and it's a large. And it can diverse category it of, is. of different beverage, and it's a, sometimes a trick getting that right drink to introduce somebody into it to really appreciate it. Um, I well, I, we'll let you address it a little bit. I'm like I can talk about personal stories with it, you know. Um, and I and I'd like you to because you know I've never been a bartender, so so some of that kind of how you talk about it at 10:30 at night is a very different conversation, perhaps. It is. It's tough. The the simple start is. Amaro just means bitter. Anything that is bitter, you could call an Amaro. You could call vermouth an Amaro. Uh, it just so happens that most folks who deal in, in beverage alcohol want to provide the most precise characterization of a product as they can. So, you know, a vermouth uh, wouldn't be called an Amaro unless it was a, a unless it was a, a sort of a derivative product like Koki make a vermouth amaro that's labeled as vermouth amaro and we always have to tell people it's still vermouth right it still goes in the fridge it's still good with whiskey um but anything bitter can be called amaro now amari for the most part before world war one were wine based and they were wine based because alcohol was expensive not anything more than that um you could get some alcohol to do your herb extractions but what you had a lot of was wine um, so you see a lot of wine-based Amari from that time. World War One, you start to see uh, industrial alcohol become cheaper. As just like here in America, World War Two uh, distilleries were refitted to to produce industrial alcohol, and you start to see spirit-based Amari, which are less expensive to produce in a lot of ways, at least uh, at the same alcohol level, because a lot of this, a lot of the cost of making Amaro is tax. But. Uh, you start to see those emerge more after after World War One in Italy. Um, a product does not have to be Italian to be labeled tomorrow. Uh, in fact, 
Uh, I think you guys may know the guys from Highwire Distilling in South Carolina. They make uh, something. Uh, you remember the name of it? It's called Southern Amaro, but there's some. Mm. I think there's some name for it, but uh, which is quite tasty, and I think it's sweetened with sorghum and and you know, uh, Amari. The, the, there's a lot of different ways to chop up the category. There's a lot of very traditional subcategories. Most folks, I think, have heard of Fernet. A One lot of folks two. don't realize that <laughs> Fernet is a category and not a not just a uh, one product from the folks at Fratelli Branca. Um, and Fernets can be made all over the world um, and even can be made under the same label all over the world in different ways. Um, I, I sometimes look at you know a few different ways to differentiate between Amari. You know, wine-based, spirit-based. It's more and more wine-based Amari coming out. A lot of them are, are the handiwork of our suppliers. Uh, low alcohol, high alcohol. And low alcohol, high alcohol, if you look back at the tradition, was ba- basically based on are the, are the driving flavors, the kinds of flavors that have to be in higher alcohol just to kind of saturate the palate. Whereas if you're working with certain other aromatics, a lower alcohol Amaro will still get that flavor across as much as our tongue can taste it. Uh, to give you an example, rhubarb root, which is uh, the only true smoky flavor in the botanical world, there's, there's really no reason to have a rhubarb root driven Amaro at a, above about 20% alcohol because that's all your tongue can taste. Was that like Zucca? Uh, no, we what work with Amaro Sfumato. Uh, we used to work with Zucca. Uh, they, they, we had a, a mutual parting of the ways. They've reintroduced the product at a much higher alcohol yeah, so in a different formulation. But, uh, but you know, sfumato that we work with from the folks at, at Capoletti, you know, it's 20% alcohol, but it has a lot of that rhubarb root character to it. Um, so high alk, low alk is one. Uh, the amount of caramel in Amaro is, is some, a way you can differentiate. You know, caramel is an important supplemental bitter flavor. It's not just a coloring. It's not just a way to get something sweeter. It is an important supplemental flavoring. And in some cases, you want a fair amount of caramel, such as you're trying to make a traditional Italian vermouth. And in some cases, caramel can, can overpower. Um, but people like the flavor of it when they're drinking it neat. A lot of Italian Amari are higher in caramel because people, the, the most common way to drink an Amaro in Italy is next to a shot of espresso. Yep. And so the espresso kind of dilutes the effect of the caramel. One of the things that's very tricky about high caramel amari is that caramel and the, the wood flavors in new in American straight whiskeys, bourbons and ryes, kind of hit the same part of the palate. So it can overwhelm that part of the palate. Uh, so sometimes a lower caramel amaro can work better in a cocktail with a whiskey simply because it lets the whiskey express more. Um, that gets that's pretty wonky, but you know there, there's. I, mean, I, I love certain high caramel amari. I mean, I love chinar. We all love chinar. Yeah. Um, I love all sorts of those things, but it, it doesn't have to be that way. And you see, not just in our portfolio, but things like Amaro Meletti uh, that are a little bit lower in caramel. And the nice thing is, is you can just check by the color um, in a lot of ways, except for rhubarb root, because rhubarb root extraction is very dark in color to begin with. So sfumato is actually very low caramel amaro. Um, what is it about Amaro's um, just overall as a category that do something with your gastric juices that make it serve as an appetite stimulant and also simultaneously can, can facilitate digestion afterwards? 
I mean, it, those are the same mechanisms. Uh, salivation and stomach juice production are, are both uh, appetite stimulants as well as digestive uh, actions. So that's and, where the meal starts and where it finishes. So an aperitif and mouth. a digestif are the same thing yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, not that we're making health claims about alcohol. Not here. at all. I'm not. Um, I am calling my stomach a bit from that bag of Doritos I ate on the way back from Chicago. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's... That's what my microphone smells <laughs> like. It's all yeah, rel- That's Doritos, not Fritos. <laughs> Frito Amaro. Um, that's a new brand that's, that's right the there. new product. That's what we have yet to discuss. <laughs> Frito Amaro. Launch, yeah. launch of the uh, Frito-Lay Amaro. That's right. It's... Uh, you think we're corny. The... Wow. I really, really need sound effects. Yeah. Like, no, you, don't have po- you don't do post-production sound effects? <laughs> no. I, I did a podcast with uh, a little shout-out to Monty Belmonte, uh, WRSI 93.9, the river in Northampton, Massachusetts. I did a... a did you do the drop-in? Because no, no. Like- <laughs> I, they, he does a lot of drop-ins in his podcast. I did a podcast with him about Dolan, and he introduced me, uh, he introduced me and I said, my name is Jake Parrott. I work for House Alpins, but I'm basically a bitter man. And uh, they threw in, they threw in uh, Pearl Jam. Oh, nice. Can't find a better man. Um, nice, nice. So you know you gotta have drop-ins. So. <laughs> nice. We'll get to work on them. Yeah, we're yeah. just still trying to figure out how the microphones work. Most of them can just be <laughs> Arthur Harumphing, though. Oh, we've got plenty of that. Harumph. Yeah. So, um, can you make um, any kind of geographic uh, distinctions between like northern and, and southern Italian, like you know? Um, I, I don't know. I'm just grasping certainly, at straws. Certainly, um, you will see some sort of hometown Amari from the south containing more citrus. Simply, that's where the citrus is. Right, warmer. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think, I think part of the, the, the really interesting part of the history of making liqueurs in Europe is that most of these guys made most of the normal styles of Amaro and, and liqueurs and things. You know... Uh, I was talking to a friend who works for Fratelli Branca and, and she was saying, you know, yeah, we have recipes for all the things that you see, all the cold kaleidoscope of things that you see at a Christmas market stand or in a traditional, you know, bottle shop in Italy. You know, they, they can make creme de pistache if they, somebody wants it. But that most of these producers become known for and actively market a very few things. Um, Capaletti that we work with, so what, it's sister and brother in, in Trento, in the north Capaletti. of Italy. You know, they, we buy, you know, from them Aperitivo Capaletti, uh, Amaro Sfumato Rabarbaro, the nice smoky Amaro, uh, Elisir Novasalis, which is one of the bitterest things you'll ever have in your life, and then uh, the new Amaro Pasubio that we're just rolling out this, this month. Um, but they, if you go to their stand at the Trento Christmas Market, you can buy creme de chocolate, creme de pistache. Uh, you know, really thick, creamy liqueurs. You can buy egg liqueur. You can buy any one of a number of infused, herb-infused grappas and things like that. And they make, you know, 50 liter, 100 liters a year or something. It's it's just something they do for the local market. A little bit um, different than our farmer's markets. Yeah, I was like, I need to hit this uh, Christmas market. Yeah. It's, a, it's a fun Christmas market. I helped them break down their stand one year uh, as it goes till, shockingly, January 6th, 12th night. And uh, I helped them break down their stand one year. There was a lot of little things. A lot of little tastings. <laughs> yeah, I bought a, right before that, I bought a nice bottle of Trento Doc, the sort of local good sparkling wine, and 
we popped a bottle of Capoletti and we we're all making spritzes for everybody. It was good fun. What did nice. uh, what did you pour for us today? I don't know. Did we ever get to that? What um, we haven't quite yet. Yeah, we need no. to get to that before we wrap up. That's so. For sure. So speaking of regional styles, I guess the, to finish the answer to your question is that there are regional things, but a lot of them have been subsumed under the need to provide the traditional, well-known, broader styles of bitter things to each producer's local market. Uh, but Amaro Pasubio, P-A-S-U-B-I-O, uh, brand new for us, Amaro from Capoletti, is a, a, a real special one. Pasubio is the name of a mountain that, that stands right near where Capoletti's facility is in Trento. And everything in Amaro Pasubio, uh, all the botanicals are all things that grow on that mountain. So uh, wild blueberry, a kind of scrub pine that grows on that, on that mountain, um, a little bit of rhubarb root, some of the sort of normal background bitter meadow herbs. Very beautiful area, these large outcroppings of the Dolomite Mountains. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's a it's fascinating place, region. highly highly worth uh, a, a few days, especially um, you can either fly to Italy and take a train north, or if, you're, if you want to have a really lovely train ride, fly to Munich and take the train through the Brenner Pass, that, that Brenner Pass from World War I history. That it's a awesome. fascinating, fascinating train ride. But, uh, but all these things, you know, blueberry, pine, rhubarb, a little bit of bitter on the... And, and then the base is, is Marsala. The base is a, a, an oxidized wine. So being an oxidized wine, the, uh, uh, the wine in Pasubio is stable. We still recommend people put it in the refrigerator, A, because it tastes better cold, and B, to keep the freshness in the, the blueberry portion of Pasubio, which is where the acidity, a lot of the acidity comes from, a lot of the freshness comes from. Um, you know, we're, we're just getting started with it. We really, really dig it. It's a, it's a recipe that, that Capoletti has had for over a hundred years. Um, it's great with all kinds of gins. It actually works very nicely with, with bourbon, uh, to kind of draw out the wood flavors in bourbon through the palate. Uh, but it's also just good on the rocks or, or with soda. I was at, a Burn Steakhouse one time and I uh, just kind of worked our way through dinner and the song was like, Hey, you know what? Uh, what do you want to try? Anything. And I was like, 30 year old Hunter Valley Simeon. He's like, ah, we don't have any. I was like, shit. Okay. I was like, I've never had badass Marsala. So I'll go see what I could find. Came back to the table in a cradle with like 1880 Marsala. It's like, let's give it a shot. We don't know what it drinks like. I'm like, all right, man. It was still drinkable. Yeah. I mean, it was impressive for yeah, Mar- something obscure I, like that. Yeah, it's a fully oxidized, fortified style. I mean, I. I can assure you, given what the price of Pasubio is, that the Marsala used is not from the 1880s. But, uh, <laughs> right. But it does add a, a lot, bring a lot of texture to the party and a nice little hit of acidity as Why well. you got to shit on my dreams, man? Nah, man. You're just you have no killing dreams. me. We can, you know, yeah, we, can story, arrange, man, we can arrange for that, but it would be cost you many hundreds of dollars. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Called Dream Shitters. Yeah. <laughs> Right after we have Mai Tais with Black Tot, right? Oh, yeah. Let's do some of that. that nope. That's the classy way to do it. No. Again, incredibly expensive. Eh, not really worth the price, but it's damn delicious. It's, what, 500 and some odd dollars? It's, no, it's up. It's up. Yeah. That we, we it's like it's four, now up to what, eight? Yeah. I mean, I, I you know every state is a little bit different, but uh, yeah, we uh, our new order will be at a new price. Well, it's dwindling. I mean, yeah, I mean it's a, the X amount. Black, for those of you who don't know, Black Todd is the, the last remaining consignment of the rum that was served to uh, sailors on Royal Navy ships before 1970. 
the uh, the remaining stocks were racked into these stone flagons that had corks in them, so the the rum continued to oxidize. It was used for royal occasions and other other private functions, and then was bought by uh, a very prominent spirits merchant in the UK, and we're their American partner. Yeah, yeah, and I've I've tasted it. I don't have a bottle at home because um, I have. A bottle of Pablo coming, behind coming, me. I can't, I can't coming soon, folks. Coming back soon. Yeah, we that's promise. super cool. Um, you have any... Uh, what, how can people find uh, House Hopins and the portfolio and all the cool stuff that we've talked about, like online or social media or anything like yeah, that? How, how can people get like 8 by 11 semi-gloss photos of you? Well, you can print the ones. That See we'll my print. agent. His name is uh, A Black, uh, <laughs> Indianapolis, Indiana. Um, so I put up my hands. He's going to need a new job. Um, no, Alpens.com is uh, our website. Uh, look for an updated website uh, very soon with a lot more information uh, and photos and recipes and all of that. Uh, our Instagram is probably the most fun. Uh, Way to follow us on social media. That's at House Alpens. Uh, also follow us on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash House Alpens. Uh, Twitter, at House Alpens. Um, and you'll find a link to their website as well off of uh, the show notes um, on our website. At Shift yeah, that's Project. House, H-A-U-S, by the way. Uh, and, and you know, one of the things that, that we always love is... is is the inspiration we get from all of you. So if you have a, a fun idea with one of our products, send it to us. We, we need that data just as uh, much as anyone. Um, we're, we're very happy to, to have reports from the field always. Um, you know, we've got three more, uh, three more botanical products coming to the U.S. market this autumn. Awesome. Uh, Amaro Alta Verde, also from the Capoletti folks. Uh, very green uh, Amaro intensely herbaceous so wormwood and genipe and mint and all those sort of green things and then uh, another uh, set of aromatized wines from uh, Corsica the one true regionalized quinquina tradition in France is from Corsica aperitif au cap corse and uh, the traditional producer Mate coming back to the states uh, both of the uh, be two bottlings both vermentino based uh, the white very driven by uh uh, flowers and cedrat. Did you say very white or berry white? It's uh, you know berry white. What's the can't, difference? Can't okay. get enough of the love of eh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, the the white uh, the white uh, the Mate Cap Course Blanc with uh, flowers and cedrat, a traditional French citrus. The red um, red from from dark sugar, not from red wine, with also a nice hit of walnut to it. A real kind of. Um, firm, bitter back palate. So be a lot of fun for making, again, a little bit drier whiskey cocktails. Yeah, keep your eyes peeled for that later on in the year. Yeah, that's M-A-T-T-E-I, Mate, uh, coming soon. I'm almost afraid to ask our final question, which would be, uh. Uh, <laughs> it, it might extend the episode another 45 minutes. Um, what's your favorite hangover cure? <laughs> time, time is the only thing that truly works. Um, That's so poetic. Hangover coping. Uh, two. One is fa. I don't think that's that's I, probably not that's a new one. Totally nice. on my list. And absolutely. the other one is is uh, there's actually a Korean stew called haijangguk, uh, which is a yeah. uh, actually called hangover soup. Um, but I I uh, tend to prefer 
Sundubu uh, Jigae, soft tofu stew uh, in the Korean tradition. Tofu stew? It's uh, tofu in this sort of, in the broth, soft tofu, so tofu that's basically formless in a broth of um, water, dried anchovies, usually a bit of bean paste, usually a bit of the chili paste, uh, and aromatics. And then most sundubu joints will allow you to add uh, bits of protein and then some kimchi to it. I usually like to get uh, either pork and kimchi or oyster and kimchi. Um, and it's it's great. And you, it comes in like a lot of Korean stews do in that really boiling hot stone pot. So mm-hmm. you have to eat it slowly, with a lot of rice. So it kind of forces you to slow down and, and, and not sort of. See, that sounds good. I'd try that. But normally tofu can suck it. Oh, I love tofu, man. Yeah. Good, well-made tofu. It's Are you kidding the me? most digestible protein known to man. And when you have a hangover, digestibility is I just had it's a not my jam. really beautiful uh, like tofu and uh, tomato dashi uh, up at Momotaro in Chicago a couple days ago. It was, it, God, it was beautiful. You're yeah. missing out on the tofu thing, man. Um yeah, well, that's that, those are like the coolest uh, cures so far. You if haven't gotten anybody, pho yet? I would assume. Well, I think somebody just say pho, but we haven't gotten into the Korean stuff yet. We really, I, really I absolutely talk love about Korean. our own hangover cures. Yeah, Korean but pho is definitely the top of my list. Yeah, Korean restaurants only you know, mainly exist to to serve the Korean communities. So, like where I live, west of DC, there's actually two little K towns between my house and the city. So, I, there's been a lot of Korean food in my life. Um, and whenever I go to LA and I'm only going for a couple of nights, I always try to stay in Cape Town. Uh, not because not I get hungover, but still, I love that stuff for breakfast. Well, mm. I'll have to hit you up next time I'm out in the DC area, yeah. which um, is one of my favorite cities for food and beverage. It's a great um, town. And in yeah, fact, speaking thereof, I want to give a shout out uh, to, well, friends of the show, uh, the folks at Espita in DC, the Mescaleria. Marvelous they, place. They just announced they are opening another place. Uh, so super excited about that. And also our recent guest, Timo Jansa, uh, in Amsterdam at Door 74, just announced uh, two days ago that he is leaving Door 74 to open uh, his own place. So really? congratulations to uh, Timo. Um, Timo, I met Timo, gosh, right after Door 74 opened. Uh, I found a reference to it on a blog written in Moldovan. Which I, I couldn't read, but it had the oh, name. Yeah, and I was the like, God, it had the name and the address, and uh, it probably was done by a bot or something. And I knocked on the door and met Phil Duff and Timo Yansa. Nice. So oh yeah, those kick ass place, and uh, very much uh, looking forward to see what uh, Timo and Tess are going to bring to the to the table in uh, Amsterdam. Yeah. Um, those of you that uh, want to follow us on social media, you can find us Shift Drink Podcast uh, pretty much everywhere. That's what we are, except for. Uh, Twitter, which is shift underscore drink, but we post lots of cool, relevant articles and also updates to what our guests are doing and things like you know what House Hoppins is putting out and the new releases we'll definitely post up on Facebook. They, you know that's uh, pretty much the one place where you do post articles, but a lot of lot of fun, sexy photos. <laughs> Not literally, I guess. We put just sex- of Arthur. We put sexy photos of Arthur on Instagram. I mean, how can you resist the man bun? <laughs> you can't, man. You cannot Nobody resist, resist the, man the man bun. But please, you know, find us on iTunes, Google Play. Please rate the show. It helps more than, than you know. Um, it helps us to keep doing what we do. So, um, yeah, gentlemen, this is awesome. Uh, let's let's yeah, uh, drink a little bit of uh, Mari and, and vermouth. And, and you've got a flight to catch, so we're in a hurry. Cheers. Cheers.